Welcome to Soaring the Sky, a glider pilot's podcast. Hello, my name is Chuck. I'll be your host. This is episode 36. This episode is brought to you by Arizona Soaring Incorporated, the nation's largest provider of professional glider training. Since 1969, they've provided training from initial private through CFI Glider and entry level through Advanced Aerobatics. Open year-round, seven days a week. More information is available at azsoaring.com. On this episode, we check in with the Perlin Project, the aeronautical exploration and atmospheric science organization that uses a sailplane specially designed to fly at extremely high altitudes. They head back to Argentina. Miguel will be with us to give us an update on how that adventure went this summer. Later, we will also talk with our friend Bruno Vassal with an update on some of his OLC events he put on in Utah this summer. We're also going to check out with some of your feedback from some of you here on the podcast today. All that right now here on Soaring the Sky. Miguel, welcome back to the podcast. Thank you very much. I'm glad to be back. Episode 8, that's your story, so if any of the listeners want to hear more detailed in your story, they can tune into Episode 8. But you went back to Argentina this year. Yeah, the whole team went back. Um, we arrived at the end of July, and we were there until uh, the end of September. So two, two months, about nine weeks of adventure in, in the Patagonia in Argentina. Yeah, I was keeping track of some of your flights, but... I'm going to let you tell the story. So you got there, and what did you have to do? What did you have to do? I understand the glider was shipped there, correct? Yeah. So basically, this was the fourth year in a row that we we do this uh, this setup. We're we're there basically August and September, and uh, the container had some problems along the uh, shipping route, and for several different reasons. Uh, it got to us uh, about 20 days late. What that caused was uh, a delay on our starting on flight operations, basically. We were there uh, waiting for for it to arrival. Um, therefore, we missed some good flying days in very early August, like the first, second, where they could have been uh, dates to go really high. Uh, we were pretty disappointed about that. So how many days did you miss because of the late shipment? Um, we need about a week to put everything together once that once that we get the container there. Um, so uh, we, we missed at least 18, 20 days of flying. Um, I think the first fly was August 16th, and the last fly was uh, September 15th or something like that. So we, we got a short, a short um, season this year. There was something called uh, a sudden stratospheric warming event that happens like once a decade, basically. That m- what it meant was that the atmosphere, the upper atmosphere, uh, lower stratosphere, was much warmer than normal, and there was an increase of 30 degrees uh, Celsius or so in temperature, which is huge. It's like 80 degrees Fahrenheit. And that broke the uh, polar vortex, which is the uh, the current of a strong winds in the stratosphere that we used to to climb between forty thousand feet and ninety thousand feet. And because of these two things, we we basically could not go uh, as high as we wanted to this year. 
Wow. So you missed that sweet spot, but then not only that, the weather gave you a real turn. So what was your focus on after this happens? I, I know you're studying a lot while you're up there, but what did you do because of the events that happened? What were you all able to do and get done? Yeah. So, well, first of all, we had several improvements on, on the glider for this year, and we wanted to test those. But as far as uh, studying climate and, and uh, getting da- data, we were uh, we were very interested on this uh, warming event. Basically, at, in the beginning of the event, which was middle of August, late August, the uh, we were the only people that were collecting data there. We had balloons, daily balloons, uh, launches with aerosounds, where we were collecting data. And then we, we were flying the Paraline, so we were seeing what, uh, you know, the Australian uh, Meteorological Service was predicting, which was extreme temperature uh, rise in the in the stratosphere. And so that was very interesting for us. We, we flew, I believe, uh, seven times only versus our normal 12, 13 flights for the season. And we were only uh, able to go... Uh, about 50,000 feet four times. Uh, the highest flights were 56,000 and some change, let's call it 57, and a little bit over 65,000 feet. By no means those are considered low flights, but compared to last year, they weren't as, as, as high as last year. And it was because this polar vortex that goes around Antarctica uh, has broken up into sections and has weakened the strength of the winds. So we, we couldn't use the, the the normal weather patterns that you see in winter um, near Antarctica. You know? So you were able to put the weather balloons up and really study what was going on despite it you know, took the winds out of the game so you weren't really able to catch that. But yeah, you, you sounds like you're able to still get a lot done. Yeah, and and we got we got four flights, um, you know, four high altitude flights out of the seven flights. So I mean, it wasn't like we couldn't get get high at all. It was just it really wasn't what we were expecting. And and then looking at looking at this um, southern stratospheric warming, they call it SSW. This doesn't happen very often. You know, I think in 2002, there was one that was a strong. Then in 2010, there was a very mild one. Uh, and then in 2019, uh, this one that is supposed to be the probably the warmest in history. There's the, it's very new. So they're, st- they're still trying to collect all the data, put it together. And scientists come up with a conclusion of, of what happened. Well, it sounds like we might hear some really interesting results from that. Yeah, there's there's already several articles in Newsweek and several other publications around the world that talked about the van. I was interviewed by a newspaper here in the United States last week, and you know, I'm telling the reporter that um, uh, that follows Perlin about this event. He did some research on his own, and and he was he he did a good piece trying to put together how important this is because it affects weather worldwide. It's not just what happened with Perlin. We're hoping that um, if, if possible, we'll come back next year and we're hoping there won't be a similar pro- uh, problem since this is not something that happens often. 
Yeah, exactly. Hopefully everything will work out a little better and your glider will get there on time and it'll be a lot better year for Perlin. But some of those flights, um, as far as the flights themselves, how many times were you able to go up in Perlin? Uh, Out of the seven times I flew personally, I flew three times, including uh, the flight to 57,000 feet. Yeah, so for for me it was a, a good a good experience and uh, the Perlan vehicle, the aircraft itself, did better than any other year. We haven't had a lot of problems with the glider, to be honest, but this year we had pretty much none. Uh, it was uh, squawk free, basically. Oh, very cool. So can you yeah. tell me a little bit about that flight? Yeah, so I believe that was fly number three, and uh, basically we came out of tow, I think, at 43,000 feet, if I remember correctly, and we have some predictions on whether uh, where this wave will be, and uh, pretty much where we thought it would be, it was, and it worked fairly well. Um, you know, we were getting about two, three knots constant, and remember, for us to get three knots of climb at let's say 50,000 feet, we need an additional four knots just to, to keep us level because true aerospeed, you know, goes up with altitude. So at 50,000 feet with our airplane, if you get four knots, that will keep you in level, level flight. So to get, to get three, that means you're getting seven knots. You know, the wave is going up at, at seven, 800 feet a minute. Okay. So, so it was looking really good and it just died suddenly. You know, we we were optimistic. I mean, I was predicting that in the next ten minutes we were going to go over sixty thousand, and and it just it just died. So we had other uh, other spots we wanted to check out, and we went there, and there was nothing. I mean, basically transiting between the high point near fifty seven thousand feet to the next point, we would lose two three thousand feet, going ten miles north, ten miles south. And get there, find a little bit of of lift, and it will die really quick. And this was at this point, the this was somewhere around the twenty second or so of August, twenty fourth, I think the twenty fourth. And the stratospheric warming event already happened at that point. So the the polar vortex was kind of a mess, miss uh, by then already. So um, we got we were not very optimistic past that point the rest of the season that we were going to be able to to go very high it kind of basically blew in and took it yeah so basically breaks it into chunks instead of a, a, a constant flow and also the the strength of the winds is lower and that really doesn't work for us and now i know we talked about this a little bit on episode eight but you break down a little bit perlin itself the airspeed and just some of the limits that it has yeah, so basically, you know, we have a typical envelope where in the left left side of the envelope with altitude, we got a stall speed, and that doesn't change. You know, the indicator stall speed for us is about 37 knots. It actually is a little less than that, but, and obviously that, that is a limitation. And then on the right side, we have a, a, a slanted curve to the left, you know, that, that starts at 121 knots near sea level. And by the time we get to 90,000 feet, it's 54 knots indicated. True airspeed, uh, roughly seven times higher at that altitude, seven, seven and a half times higher. So if we're doing 53 knots uh, just below VNE, we're actually doing 320 knots or so. 
or trailer yeah. speed. Wow. So, so obviously at night, I, because the trailer speed is higher, you know, your sync rate will, you know, while, while our sync rate is, I don't know, 110 feet a minute at sea level, you know, uh, our minimum sync, that sink at um, at altitude is much higher. It's about 800 feet a minute at 90,000 feet. So you need eight knots to just to keep you level at, at 90,000. While it doesn't work like this, a, a rule of thumb is for every 10,000 feet, you need one more knot of climb, you know, of wave uh, going up. So if you're at 20,000 feet to, to be, to be a level, you need two knots. 30,000, three knots, 40,000, four knots, 50,000, five, and so on. So you okay. take the first okay. digit and that's how many knots you need. And then so for climbing, you need an excess above that. And again, it doesn't really work like that, uh, but it's close enough. Like you need 4.1 knots at 50,000, you know, it's four point okay. something. By the time you get to 80, it's, it's even. At 80,000, you need eight knots. But to give you an idea, if we, if we look at a spot and at 60,000, it has between five and a half and six knots of, of wave of predicted climb. That's not going to work for us. We're going to get there and we're either not going to be able to climb or, or we're going to maintain at best. So we will look for an excess normally of two knots above what we need to maintain. You know, you guys are working with a very complex glider and I mean, it is still glider, but there's a lot going on there, but it flies, it flies, uh, very much like a capsule with wings. Uh, you forget you're in a glider, to be honest. Uh, you forget you're in an airplane. Because, really? uh, especially on the back seat where I see it, you got no visibility forward, right? And on the side, you got these uh, small windows, but they, uh, humidity condensates there and that gets frozen, you know. So you, you don't see anything outside. You got, you got some tablets that have a live image on the glider from the tail and from the nose. And so that helps you see what's outside. And you need to see what is outside because you don't want the clouds to close under you, you know, you, because you need, you need to see how you're going to get back. But we have these, um, these maps that we create with different colors. And those colors uh, mean the strength of the, w uh, of the wave, right? So we have an idea where it's going to be. It doesn't always work because this is completely an experimental science that we're creating to predict uh, at altitude, at this altitude, 50, 60, 70, 80, 90, 100,000 feet, where, where these currents are going to be. And sometimes it works very, very close. Sometimes it's way off, you know. But it gives you something to look at and some spots to go check out. You know. So it, it, at sometimes it almost feels like you said, like you're in a capsule, not even a glider, just the way you're setting and the way what you can see or what you can't see. Uh, yeah, absolutely. It's, it's uh, especially from the back seat. I think it's 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 really a strange. I cannot compare it to anything else that I've flown and definitely not compare it to another glider, because in a glider, one of the things is that you have all this visibility, right? The canopy gives you. A great visibility around you got a lot of light coming in and in Perlan is is pretty much exactly the opposite of that you got almost no light coming in you're uh, reclined more than any other glider and you have all this equipment on top of you uh, all these avionics very very close to you so I, to me I'm not an astronaut but what I see by talking to 
friends that are astronauts and seeing videos and movies and so on, it's like what you will feel uh, being inside of a capsule, like the Soyuz uh, versus an airplane, you know. And the other thing is you forget that you have no propulsion or, or anything. You just, you're just there, you know. Uh, you're not there by coincidence. You put yourself there, so you're still flying, but it's, uh, it's a different type of flying. It's almost a mixture between flying a glider and a balloon while sitting inside of, uh, of a capsule. Yeah. yeah, very interesting. And if you go online and look at the pictures that I've seen of Perlin, yeah, I can very much see that because like you spoke before, there's not really a lot of room. No, no, in that part is very much like a glider. Um, it's a little roomier than a glider, but the amount of equipment and avionics that we have, it's a lot more than any other glider. Um, so you don't have a lot of space for uh, for anything. And moving because you're strapped in uh, really tight is really hard. So you can't, you can't really turn to your side and try to do something. You have to be able to reach everything from the position you're going to be in for the next six or seven hours. So can I ask you, what are plans for Perlin for next year? Back to Argentina? Uh, we don't know. We're going to decide this uh, before before the end of the year. Very likely we'll decide it uh, sometime in November. And we're just uh, looking at all the options. We're looking at funding. Funding is, is important. And then we're, we we had the idea of maybe taking a year off. So I'm not sure. I, we're leaning towards possibly going next year, but um, it's not decided yet. There's one of, one of the issues is that we plan everything more than a year ahead. And this was supposed to be the last year. Uh, we our prediction tools and computations have gone better so much more every year that last year they were correct 70-80% of the time. So the assumption was that based on last year and with the improvements going towards this year would be a done deal. Basically, we will get to 90,000 feet and then we will retire the airplane to, to a museum. And because that didn't happen, we didn't start preparing before Argentina or during Argentina to come back next year. So we're we're already behind. That's what I'm getting at. Okay. Yeah, I understand. So we don't know if we're going to try to to rush and go in 2020 or take 2020 off as far as going to Argentina and shoot for uh, 2021. Well, we'll definitely keep in touch with you and wish Perlin the best. It's been kind of fun following you guys, and we'll continue to do that. And what an exciting project, and how fortunate you're able to be part of it. That's that's pretty awesome. Yeah, I I'm, I really feel fortunate, uh, you know, flying with Jim Payne and the rest of the people, you know, in the team is, is really a, a dream come true. And we're all very creative in, in different ways to try to make this thing happen. Um, I know you talked to uh, Bruce Patton um, in one of the episodes and um, of your podcast, and, and he came with us this year to to Argentina. He was a real, a real good asset to have him there. Um, he, I think, he was there for four and a half weeks. Oh, very cool! I bet he really enjoyed that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Bruce was the first person I flew wave with. He was my instructor, uh, getting my commercial glider license. And he's a friend, so it was a blast having him there. And he was a real asset too. I think he enjoyed the uh, 
the opportunity and um I'm sure if we come back next year, we we're gonna invite him to come to come back. Well, we may have to catch up with Bruce and see how he enjoyed Perlin. I would love to hear what he has to say from a different perspective. You know, sometimes when you when you're the one flying, you're you're kind of stressed out preparing the flight. You know, and there's so much going on into it that that you're kind of tunnel vision. You know, and right. uh, if you're not doing that, I'm sometimes wonder if you will be able to enjoy things a little better. That's so true. So anyway, Miguel, that's, that's where we're at this year. Yeah, no problem. I, I'm, I'm always happy to talk about Perlin. And a good thing is that this year we don't have to do almost any modifications to the glider. Uh, most of the improvements were done last year towards this season. And uh, I think uh, the plan will be to fly it in the, in the Sierras out of Minden uh, going into February and March. Oh, very nice. Yeah, um, we should be getting the Perlin back in the country here in about a month from now. Well, maybe I'll be fortunate enough to see that someday. Um, one way to see it is to attend Wave Camp in Minden. Uh, we always have presentations there, and we, in years past, we always make sure everybody that came to the camp uh, got to see uh, the Perlin in first person. Our hangar is across from the hangar where uh, Wave Camp uh, takes place in Minden. Okay, all right. So if people are out that way or planning to be out that way, there's a good chance they can see Perlin. Yeah, it's, it's not 100% because sometimes during wave camp, we're in the middle of uh, taking things apart. And, you know, there's, it's hard to, to have visitors when, when the airplane is all in pieces. Uh, but most of the time it's not. And we in the past, we've been able to, to give tour, tours to people. And definitely we do presentations, at least one, if not two presentations uh, on Perlin. Oh, wow. That sounds great. Thank you. Yeah, yeah, definitely check it out if you're if you're in in April in in Minden. Um, Wave Camp by itself is just worth every penny, but you know, Perlin is there as well. Well, thank you, Miguel. I appreciate you rejoining us on the podcast here. Thank you so much. I'm I'm glad to be on, Chuck. And we will, like I said, keep in touch with you, and we'll see what Perlin has in store for the future. Sounds good. Thanks again, Miguel, for the update on the Perlin project. We will definitely keep an eye on what's going on there. Also, Bruno Vassell gave us a call and gave us an update on his two OLC events that he had this year in Utah. Bruno, good to have you back on the podcast. How are you today? Hi there. Happy to be here. Thanks for inviting me. Yeah, sure. Absolutely. How was the contest this year as far as the soaring goes and people showing up? How did, how did that go? Yeah, appreciate that. So we did. Uh, we ended up doing two OLC events in Utah this year. The first was uh, a big OLC event in Nephi, end of June, beginning of July, and we had about sixty gliders participate uh, for about ten days. And then we did a second one in in Logan. Um, this was a OLC camp slash mountain flying camp that we did the second week of August for a week. And uh, we had um, a lot of fun flying in, in both of them, uh, pretty good weather in both of them, and uh, a lot of people seemed to, to have a good time. So, yeah, I'm excited to talk about it. I, I love this format of flying and events, and so um, you can always get me to talk about an OLC event, that's for sure. Well, it gives people an opportunity to fly, I'm sure, that maybe normally wouldn't fly in an event. In the past, uh, most soaring, organized soaring events would be either a regional contest or a national contest. Uh, 
where you're coming and every single day there is a task given and you get a number of points for that day. And the points accumulate throughout the week to, to two weeks that you're flying it. And at the end, whoever has the most points wins. So what that shows is if you blow a day um, or a couple of days, then um, it's really hard to, to make up for it. And uh, human nature, most people don't like to see themselves at the bottom of a score sheet. <laughs> so yeah, um, right. what you then get is people who blow a couple of days and they get frustrated and then they leave early. and uh, Or people are just too intimidated to even do it. So right. What we started do, doing, um, this has now been four or five, maybe even six years ago, is we did our first what we called OLC cross-country camp, and it's a little bit slightly different format. So it's just as organized as a regular contest. So you have a scorer, you have a contest manager, contest director, retrieve office, uh, you have line boys and, and girls that are helping launch. So, I mean, a lot of organization, daily pilots, briefings in the mornings, every morning with weather and, and everything. But what's slightly different is while we do give a task for the day, the winner of that task is for that day only. So there is no ongoing cumulative uh, rankings or scores. So what it allows you to do is one day, if you want to, you can fly the task. Next day, if you want to, you can just go do a fun fly. Next day, if you want to, you can uh, go for a bike ride. If you're too tired to fly and you're not feeling this pressure that you have to uh, participate in every single task, uh, especially if the weather's iffy, you're feeling uncomfortable, you're now not being pushed beyond your comfort zone. So what we've seen is that both you know, hardcore racers, but also, um, you know, people who have just been flying for a long time, but they're not as interested in contests to the, the newbies. They they can do cross-country, but they've never been to a contest. All these people are gravitating towards these types of events because there's no pressure, lots of organization, lots of fun, and ultimately um, people are leaving better pilots and having great experiences. So it's it's really fun. Oh, great. Yeah, definitely sounds like a more relaxed environment. I mean, I've talked to a couple of guys who have done the other contest, and they were just too exhausted to go to the second day, and then now they end up flying the third day. But And it was set up differently, so like you said, they felt like they, you know, they almost were, I guess, not going to be in the contest because they were taking and missing a whole day where it doesn't work in the way you're Tell me how you have it set up. So, yeah, that sounds like it would be a much more relaxed atmosphere for someone that really wants to get into some contests, you know, and check it out and see how it goes. Yeah. There are a lot of wins. Um, three things. First, the hardcore racers, um, they, they often use these as an, an opportunity to explore a site. So, for example, Nephi, we do a national contest every other year. So we'll get hardcore national guys that come during the off year, the OLC year, to explore the site and have fun to get ready for the national contest. Uh, you'll see guys that um, have been flying forever. Rami is a perfect example of this. It's fun to see people like him participate actually in an organized event. And then the third, I love it when I hear guys that have come to an event for the first time and they say, you know, I, I think I'm going to try my first contest uh, next year. And that's awesome. Yeah, that is awesome. Definitely get some pumped up to try it themselves. I haven't done any contest yet, but Hopefully, I'll make it out your way. That sounds like a good uh, a good start <laughs> to yep, to see how absolutely. the contest goes. Even if you know you come out and 
maybe do a ride along. I don't know if you all do that out there, but the two seaters oftentimes there's the opportunity to do that. That's awesome. I heard some guys that you know have been out there in previous years, and I think most of the guys I've talked to end up going back because they have a really good time. <laughs> yeah, we're a bad habit once you start. <laughs> you just keep coming back. We 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 have some great uh, well great friends, but uh, quote unquote friends slash customers. But uh, a ton of guys from the Chicago club they come uh, this year. I mean, we had some people from everything from New York to Florida come all the way out here, you know, both to uh, Nephi and then also to, to Logan. So um, flying the, the mountains is um, much more intense, much more exciting, and you know, the uh, the risk levels um, obviously are higher as well. So yeah. when you can do it in an organized um, type of event, then it's, it's really good. So I, I want to touch real briefly on Logan. Logan is a real special place. Um, we did do a nationals there, 15 meter nationals back in um, 2011. And what we found from that experience was that while it's an amazing place to fly, it's not quite perfect for a large contest type event, but it is perfect for doing these types of camps where um, you're not limited to towing only up to 2,000 feet above and releasing low on the ridge kind of a thing. Um, and so we, we just had a great experience this year in Logan because uh, we um, only invited people that um, had previous mountain experience. So this was not a learn how to fly in the mountains thing, but we did spend quite a bit of time every single day, just little tidbits here and there of tips and tricks of both doing it safer and, and more efficient, efficiently transitioning ridges and mountain ranges and things. So um, had a great time. So again, in a, in a, in a site that might be a little bit more technical where you say, I want to do an event, but I'm just not sure about a contest. Again, another format to, uh, to consider. Are you still flying the same aircraft as last time we talked? Yeah. So I have a, an ASW-27B, and I have a Phoebus sitting in my garage, but uh, I, I think I'm like 30 pounds over over the gross weight. <laughs> One of my listeners actually asked me, he said, hey, ask Bruno about the Phoebus. So I said, well, I'll have to ask him next time. So I'm glad you brought that up. But yeah. Oh, she's, yeah, she's so pretty sitting there just saying, hey, hey, Porco, you know, lose some weight and <laughs> come fly me. So, I, you know, I, I was saying this season I was going to fly the Phoebus and uh uh, yeah, too many pizzas, I guess. So next season, <laughs> well, my wife, she's pushing me. She's like, fly that darn thing or sell it because I've, I've now owned it. Right. This is my very <laughs> first glider. I sold it and I bought it back. I've now had it for two years, and she's just sitting there ready to go. So next season will be the season of, uh, of the Phoebus as well because um, it's been so fun doing a lot of uh, fun flights and videos and things with high performance, but a lower to low medium performance but to see this um, it's fun to show that you can still do fun flights and, and things in, in an aircraft like that so instead of a hundred or two hundred thousand glider a thousand dollar glider you can still have a lot of fun yeah I'm still flying the 126 so I, I will be more than happy to get in those high performance gliders eventually. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the Phoebus would blow your mind. <laughs> <laughs> well, thanks, Bruno. It's been great catching up with you again. 
Yeah, thank you for the invite to be back, and uh, always yeah. fun to share a little bit more about the sport. Yeah, absolutely. Keep in touch with us, and uh, we'll t- we'll catch you back again soon. Yeah, we'll, we'll be talking next year about the uh, wedging into the Cebus, so for sure. Absolutely, yeah, I want to hear about that. Thank you. And thank you for listening to another great guest here on Soaring the Sky. It's always nice to get an update from our previous guest, and Perlin, great to hear how that went this year and also good to hear from our friend bruno vassal thank you bruno some of you have left feedback to let us know where you're listening from rob says hello from calgary canada he said he will be soon starting his soaring adventure as a student pilot congratulations rob glad to hear that mark moran is also a student pilot he says hello and Yuli from Berlin, Germany, excited about the podcast, excited to hear from pilots all over the globe. Thank you, Yuli, for checking in with us. And if you want to check in with us and say hi, if you're a pilot and you would like to share your story, you can also do that. It's Chuck at SoaringTheSky.com. Get a hold of me. And while you're online, you can check our Instagram and Facebook. Both of those are Soaring the Sky Podcast. So both of those, Instagram, Facebook, Soaring the Sky Podcast. Also, while you're online, a great place, as always, to find your first glider ride or just some great information, some great webinars, ssa.org. We hope you join us back here next week for another great guest here on Soaring the Sky.